Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 124 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features a large format and digital photographer living in the highlands of Scotland, Tim Parkin. Tim and his wife Charlotte published the very popular online landscape photography magazine, On Landscape. Tim and I had a great conversation and covered a lot of really fun ground this week, including his journey as a photographer, uh, the challenges and benefits of shooting large format film, uh, digital manipulation in film photography, uh, the parallels between music genres and landscape photography, and of course, all about the On Landscape magazine and uh, the YouTube videos that they talk that they create for their conference. Uh, over on Patreon this week, Tim and I talked all about his 365 project and how we both look at photography and how our tastes are informed. Well, if you're a listener and you have not yet uh, jumped over to Patreon to help support the podcast and keep it going, there's even more reasons to pledge now than ever. We have 90 bonus episodes over on Patreon now for anyone supporting the podcast at the $5 a month level and higher. Um, I also encourage you to stay tuned through the show to learn more about upcoming guests and other really awesome things that I'm excited to share with you as the listeners. Okay, let's get right to the show. And thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. No problem at all. I'm a I'm a real big fan of what you've got going on with uh, on Landscape Magazine. I think it's it's a really awesome publication that you've got going. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, it's something we get been going on a while, so hopefully it still keeps developing. So uh, positive affirmation is always good. <laughs> right you you like to hear that people actually you know value it is otherwise you're like why why am i doing this again <laughs> yeah yeah does anybody does anybody read it oh they must do now and again they pay occasionally so that's fine <laughs> yes so thank you yeah so um for people that maybe don't uh know your name or are familiar with you and your your work maybe tell people a little bit about yourself and uh tell us a little bit about how you got into photography Okay, yeah, no problem. Um, I'm a, I suppose, a, a bit of a late starter to photography. I did, I did, I did use to take pictures as a kid, and I had a black and white camera, and uh, uh, and I got very interested in it with some with some next door neighbours. But uh, sadly, or 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 I suppose it could be a good thing is computers came along, and I got um, I was looking to buy a, a new computer. It's one of these. Uh, build your own kits in, in would have been around 1976 or 78. <laughs> oh, um, wow. And, but in, in order to afford it, I had to sell the camera. So that was the end of any possible career in photography. Uh, <laughs> so with, with, this, with this computer, I ended up becoming an engineer um, and, and worked in uh, gen designing generators, motors, and all sorts of bits and bobs. Uh, ended up working for a university for a while. Uh, as a lecturer, and had an accident when I was uh, in in Manchester, which uh, oh. I I ended up breaking my back uh, repairing an aerial cable um, for some friends to watch football in 1996. Uh, and I was off work with um, um, a 
three vertebrae fused together and one of them they removed, etc. Those are off work for about two years. Uh, and as part of my recuperation, my, my doctor said, you need to get out and do some, do some walking. Uh, it's, <laughs> sitting there playing video games isn't going to get you very, get you better very fast. I used to run, I used to run the Quake 2 leagues in Europe. At oh, one point. I love it. I yeah. used to love playing Quake 2. <laughs> yeah, so we, we, we ran a little league. I used to play Capture the Flag uh, with the guys. Yeah. I was in 1996, that would have been about. Uh, but anyway, this is about 19, uh, maybe 2001, 2002. Um, so uh, I thought, well, I can't, I've got to go out and do some walking. What, what's going to motivate me? Because I'm not really interested in just walking for the sake of it, or at least I wasn't then. Um, um, so I thought, oh, I could, I could get a camera and just uh, have a go taking a few pictures. And and so after a, after a tax rebate and a camera and, and uh, I read a few magazines and I was told I had to do a, a sunrise somewhere so I got up early and <laughs> went to, went to Bremen Rocks took a took a picture and, and and I was like wow this is actually quite cool I quite like this sitting there with a cup of cup of coffee watching the sunrise over over this uh, English druidic landscape absolutely. Um, uh, and, and even better than that, within within six months, I'd got one of my uh, that that photograph, the f- first photograph I took, ended up winning uh, a place in the landscape photographer of the year. So it was like, it was fantastic of this like re- reinforcement to oh, this is something you you're obviously you're, you're obviously good enough at to uh, get recognised. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> but, but that's competition. That I shouldn't really use that as any assessment of whether it was any good at the time or not. But we'll come back to that in a bit, I'm sure. Um, so, and, and then the year after, I, I got a uh, present off my parents' fortieth uh, birthday present to go on a workshop in the Outer Hebrides. Um, and what my parents didn't realise when they booked it is the guy who ran the workshop, or in fact, the two guys who were running the workshop, were both large format photographers. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, I ended up with a group of uh, ten photographers in a Viking longhouse on the outskirts of the Hebrides, all using large format cameras and uh, film cameras and things. Uh, and uh, initially it was a bit odd, but uh, by the end of the week I'd been converted into a, a wooden camera junkie. <laughs> what, were so, you, what were you shooting with at the time? Uh, I had a Canon 5D Mark II with really? a, a, yeah, and a tilt, a tilt lens, I think I had, and a, and a, a zoom lens. So I had 24 tilt. Uh, and a and a and a twenty four to seventy. Uh, and when I saw some of the results from the large format cameras, then I was a bit of a bit of a convert. Somebody had brought a forty inch Cibachrome print, uh, one of one of David's pictures, David Ward. Um, oh, so that's wow. that's 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 sort of where it started. Yeah, I um, mean, <laughs> that seems like uh, a very a very quick uh, transition from oh I'll just play around with a camera to see if it gets me out of the house to like going off into the full deep end of super niche and like that's crazy <laughs> oh yeah I, re- I remember when actually when i got my first camera i was working well i was running my own business um with with my wife and one of the guys who was working for us bought me a copy of i can't remember who's but jack de kinger's oh, yeah, large sure. format na- large format nature photography book uh, and I remember he said at the time, he said, oh, you'll have to watch what you do. You'll end up using the large format cameras like this. And it's like it was one of those, oh, how we laughed moments. <laughs> Thinking, oh, yes, like that would ever happen. <laughs> and then here, yeah. so are you, are you still shooting large format now? 
I do. Uh, I haven't. I haven't for a bit because I've after moving house, um, I've got all my darkroom gear uh, for developing, and it's gone into a shed which is too full to actually get to. So I haven't shot a lot of film in the last couple of years. But I do. We've just built another shed to create some more space. So I will be getting a dark room sorted out. Um, so and I've I've got to start doing it because I've got about four thousand sheets of five four Velvia sitting wow. in a freezer out there. So I've got. <laughs> I've got to get going with using that before it all expires. Well, expires any further, should I say? <laughs> so um, I would love to talk to you about um, large format because I feel like um, people that uh, I guess you know started photography in the last ten years, I would say by and large, most people really don't fully understand, or I'm going to go as far as to maybe say appreciate some of the challenges of that style of, of landscape photography. I think it, I think it lends itself to a completely different process. And also, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of challenges that we don't necessarily have to grapple with, with digital. Um, So I'd be curious kind of what, what has your experience with that been like in terms of what are the, pros and cons and what's enjoyable about it to you what frustrates you about it yeah i mean i'd say at one point in time i was um i i, I decided not to do any any digital photography but I've, I've, i rapidly disabused myself of that position because i think <laughs> uh, they, there are so many uh advantages and disadvantages to different types of photography it's uh it's it's quite excluding if you just say i'm not i'm i'm just going to do this one thing which might work artistically for some people but I do like to give myself some flexibility. But from from the point of view of of what I see as the advantages and disadvantages, there is, I think people miss out quite often on how the physical aspects of the camera that they use mediates what they create in their photography. Mm. Um, and and it's, it's it's almost a cliche that people said, "Oh, large format slows you down." Uh, <laughs> and 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 yes, that's 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 part of it. But I think what it's, it, one of the biggest things it does, I mean, it, it does slow you down, but I can go out when I was pretty good uh, and taking quite a lot of large format photographs and I could get everything set up and take a picture in about five minutes, which is fast enough to uh, to react to most uh, normal weather conditions. You know, if it's, if it's very quickly changing conditions, I might be able to do a, a quick two-minute shot, but it's not going to be subtly done. And I don't think that's what large format lends itself to anyway. But what it does do is it, it gives you a, an investment uh, level that you have to have before you take a photograph. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it forces you to do this. And, that, and I would say so what, what I mean by that is it, there's, a, there's a financial investment side of it, which is it's going to cost you £10, uh, £20 or whatever, how much it's going to cost you per photograph by the time you've scanned it and printed it. Um, it's also going to take you the time uh, to set up and invest in it, and when you get it back, you've got to scan it all. So this, there's this um, hurdle to cross to create a picture. Yeah, and that and that forces you to say, okay, do I really want to take this picture? Uh, am I, I, is this what I'm taking worth taking a photograph of? It also, uh, once you're set up and you're sitting there ready to take a picture, it forces you to go, is this the best moment to take a picture? Mm-hmm. And and it's very easy to say, well, I can do that with digital. 
It's, it, that might, that, there's nothing there that I can't decide to do with digital. I'll just think a bit more about my photography and, and take a bit longer. The, the problem is most of the people I know, and I know myself very much so, can't do that. I When I pick up a digital camera, if I try and use it like a large format camera, it takes that much intellectual thinking to slow myself down to be able to say, okay, I'm not going to take this picture or I'm going to take longer to compose it or I'll wait uh, an hour for the right light. It's too easy to be able to go, ah, the light's quite good now. I'll just take that one shot now. And then in 10 minutes' time, when the light's bad, you'll think, well, I've got the shot already. I'll move on and find something else. And so however... Um, However much you can do these same processes with a digital camera or with, with other types of cameras, there is something about being forced into that situation that, that does change things. So uh, there's, there's, that, there's that side of it. There is the other side of it, which is to do with uh, using transparency film, which um, if you've ever used Velvia, it, it doesn't have much dynamic range. And even, if, even with the drum scanner, we're talking maybe... Uh, eight usable stops, which means sure. you're exposing in a six, five, five stop range, typically. Um, and and what that does is it forces you to work in uh, more diffuse light in softer conditions, mm-hmm. uh, because because it just doesn't work uh, at all physically in in brighter conditions. And it turns out, I mean, I I, I have this theory that um, if you look at a print and look at how much light is reflected off a print it usually has from the darkest blacks of an inkjet print to the whitest whites about five or six stops maybe um, in, in a, a well-lit picture. That just happens to be about the same as the amount of stops you get in a, in a transparency film. Hmm. And so I think there's something that trans, trans, uh, translocates nicely from a, a scene into a print because of that. Um, and, and you get into the habits of using things in the, in the landscape, like using reflected lights or using when the sun's going over a cloud, choosing that moment when the sun's half in and half out of the edge of a cloud to create soft but directional light. So there's certain things that the limitations of large format make you think about that, that tend to work. Uh, saying that, I, I, I haven't used one for two years, so I'm um, apart from the odd picture here and there, so I've been going out with a digital. I'm curious too, uh what are what are some of the other kind of physical uh, limitations in terms of um, just the application of large format in terms of lens selection or um, like yeah. man- manipulating of the equipment and things like that? Because I one of my one of my listeners is always talking about that stuff, and I, I really can't speak to it myself because I've never used that type of equipment. But he's always rattling off. Um, all kinds of, Hey Tim, <laughs> his name's Tim too. Uh, he's <laughs> okay. always rattling yeah. off all kinds of um, things about that. Cause he comes from that era. And I just, it sounds like yeah. it was just a lot, there was just a lot more things that you had to be aware of. So um, can you s- speak to any of that? Uh, yeah. Some of it. Uh, um, there are, there are, you definitely learn more about how lenses work, for instance, because you're not using the center of a lens. Um, you're no longer having a, a natural vignette that works from a bright center to a dark corners. Because if you shift uh, half a frame downwards on a lens, you've now got this off-center vignette. So you, have, you, you almost get a, a graduated filtery effect across a picture 
through using the vignette on the edge of a lens, uh, which you've then got to compensate for if you're using a, uh, a low dynamic range film like Velvia. Um, the other aspects of it are, I'm, I'm trying to think what there might be there. There's the idea that, the, that you're using prime lenses and, it, and there's a conscious choice of what lenses to use. Um, there is a natural tendency not to use very wide angle lenses because they don't work very well into, on the camera. So for instance, let's say a, uh, a 90 mil lens is a typical wide angle on large format, which is maybe a 23, 22 mil lens on 35 mil equivalent. Um, people sometimes use a 72 mil is the widest most people go. When you're using a 72 mil lens, you cannot really see the whole of the picture on the back of the ground glass in one go. You have to move your head around to be able to see it. So there, there's a, a practical limitation in terms of ultra-wide angle lenses. If you want to use a long lens, um, you have to expand the bellows, even with a telephoto type lens, to quite extreme amounts. So for instance, on my 5.4, I've got a, a 500 mil lens. Uh, and I have to have the bellows out at about, uh, well, it's nearly half a meter by the time you go from the front of the lens. Mm. You get wind, you get wind problems, but then you get <laughs> right. camera shape problems, and even then, you're only talking about 130 millimeter equivalent. You know, it's uh, so practically most people only ever work between a 24 and a 100 mil uh, on a large format camera. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's impractical, impractical really, to go much beyond that. Well, I think you with, <clears throat> you spoke a little bit to the uh, challenges of dynamic range, but I think there's another. Uh, dimension to this in terms of, um, you know, I know you can do some things in the dark room in terms of bringing out shadows and, and, you know, dodging and burning and things like that. But yeah. for the most part, like there's not a whole lot of quote unquote manipulation that's readily, readily available in that type of photography. I feel like for the most part, like what you see in front of you, and what you're experiencing is generally what you're going to get when you pro when you develop the film. Although uh, I'm sure I could be told that I'm completely wrong too. Well, uh, yeah, I think both things are true. I think I think the majority of people do work in a in a, uh, a what you see um, mode um, because typically the lot the, the dark room has been quite difficult to make these dramatic changes. However, there's there's two aspects of that that maybe. Uh, disprove it. There's, there's people like Jerry Olsman, who was a black and white photographer who did amazing psychedelic manipulations <laughs> uh, in, in, the, in the 19, I'd be right to say in the 1960s or 70s, possibly. Uh, he's work, worth looking up. I think it's Jerry U-E-L-S-M-A-N. Jerry Olsman. Uh, definitely worth looking at to see what's possible. Uh, and I've, I've, I've spoken to uh, quite a few studio photographers from the maybe the 70s 80s who were doing uh professional car photography on 10.8 film and transparency film and when you see the amounts of uh, post-production that was possible with those literally by manipulating and painting in on the transparencies or taking two transparencies cutting them up repositioning them relighting them re-photographing them again and then manipulating them again mm. um you you're creating the, the possibility for quite a lot of manipulation then um but in general i think a lot of people who were working in um nature like, like landscape photography or oh, wouldn't have been doing that 
Um, and I should say, when I say about limited dynamic range, the black and white films that you can get these days have a huge amount of dynamic range. We're talking 12, 13 stops hmm. for for a good black and white film. Uh, Ilford HP5, maybe Tri-X, I think, I mean, uh, especially with some developers. And color negative film still has more dynamic range than the best digital sensors. Hmm. Um, I, I, I made a few experiments to try and find the the hi- highest contrast image I could get to see if I could challenge uh, Portra 400 was my uh, test film with this. And I couldn't find a film that wouldn't allow me to get a, you know, that would blow out, essentially. Nice. Um, so, so there, you know, and, and it has that flexibility. And once you have that, and, and I run a, I run a drum scanning service. This is another aspect of my, my business in the background. Uh, I've got two Heidelberg drum scanners in the shed at the back, and we do we do drum scanning for people's archives. But also, a lot of people are still using film either in a either in an artistic format or um, or using it uh, because of where they live. We get we get a few foreign photographers who just don't have the the facilities for for digital so they they've they've worked I mean, there's chinese photographers who are working with black and white film because it's difficult to purchase uh good quality equipment that matches that quality with with digital hmm. so um what, and, and what is the uh and, what is the process for drum scanning because every time i've heard about it my my imagination goes wild and i picture like a giant like cylinder that has the film on it that then I, I have no idea how it works at all. <laughs> you're getting you're getting pretty much there. It's 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 in, it's in fact it's incredibly basic. It's like a it's like a wax cylinder record player but with light. So you you wrap you like you say you get a big cylinder uh, made out of acrylic. Um, you put your film on it and then you put a layer of mylar over the top like an acetate over the top and and in between you would have an oil or or a type of um we we, we use naphtha which is a very lightweight um, um hydrocarbon um once that's wrapped together it goes in a machine and the machine has a built-in microscope essentially um and this microscope focuses on a single spot behind that you have a photo multiplier which which are the, the same as you would get in a pair of night vision goggles you know uh light intensifying goggles um and they and then it filters the light into red green and blue and it and that basically reads one pixel and then the cylinder rotates around by five microns uh and it reads the next pixel and then it it moves around by one by five microns and reads the next pixel and by the time it's done a full revolution the whole the whole scan head the microscope moves up five microns and then it works on the next row so how, how long does it take? Uh, if I scan a large format piece of film at the highest resolution, it could take fifty minutes. Okay. To scan to scan one piece of film, so yeah, it's a time consuming process. I mean, this is it's it spins it spins pretty fast. You can get lower resolution results faster. Sure. But for me, because I work with a drum scanner and I do other things, I can mount the film and then leave it to run overnight. Uh, if I if I fill it with film, it can run for two days, nonstop. And my understanding is uh, the revolution a resolution you can get from a drum scan scanner on large format is insane, like hundreds of megapixels, right? Yes, um, theoretically, 
uh, it, and, it, and it depends on the film type. It depends on the the camera. Um, th- there's been a lot of I've, I've got an article online. We can link to this uh, in the magazine. We did a test where we uh, we we got uh, phase cameras to come up with some equipment. We had a 10.8 camera, a 5.4 camera, Mamiya 7. Uh, we got them all drum scanned. We got microscopes to actually look at what the resolution on the film was. We photographed resolution targets and also real world and 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 worked out what, how much resolution these things have in the real world. It was, it was after a few tests on luminous landscape where we were going. Uh, we don't quite believe that, so we thought we'd do it ourselves. Um, cut, to the, cut to the bottom line, large format, 5.4 film, about 60 megapixels. Okay. But it has a slight, slightly different characteristic because in actual fact, if you look at the amount of fine detail, uh, as in the amount of lines you can see, it's got about 200 megapixels. But all those lines are very, very low contrast. Mm. So we, we did two things. One we said is like, how much, how much detail can it record, which is 200 megapixels. And then we did, if you put a print on the screen, on, the, on a wall, and put it next to a digital camera of a certain resolution, where does it match up? And that was around 60 to 80 megapixels. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but it's, 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 very, it's a very odd thing, though, because as you, as you show larger and larger pictures, the large format looked better and the digital looked worse. As <laughs> you've got smaller and smaller pictures, you know, you're like 20, 24-inch prints, 30 by 36-inch print, the medium format digital sensor looked better than the film one. Mm-hmm. because it's all relative contrast levels, which is why there's so many arguments online because uh, people aren't comparing like with like, essentially. Right. But yeah, but then you can, then you go to 10 by 8 film, uh, and that's when you get to the point where you can get up to maybe 300 megapixels. So 10 8 film is still potential to be extremely high resolution. That's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, and and, I, I, and I'm but, assuming it's really expensive. <laughs> It, it can be very expensive and very unwieldy. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ben, ben Horn does a very good job with it, and it's uh, it, it, it just changes the way you work, and I think that's why Ben likes it. It's a way of working uh, beyond anything to do with resolution. Sure. Well, one of the kind of a corollary to all this, um, as, as somebody who has shot both digital and large format, I'm curious, have you spent any time uh, – looking at your images shot on either medium to compare like like do you find that you're because of that change in process and how you approach the scene and the being forced to slow down have you found um that your images are significantly different on di- the, each medium or uh kind of how have you seen your own personal uh i guess results out of the two different mediums yeah, I would say I would say definitely there's a difference, um, and it, it, it's uh, there's been a converging slightly as I got bit, as I got more familiar with the with the different formats. I've been able to take pictures with digital that look a little bit more like I would use with a large format, and vice versa. Um, some of those differences are to do with um, if if I'm using a large format camera, I, I wander around with a with a piece of card with a hole in it. Know, four by five hole, and, <laughs> and, and 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 find the picture in the field. Yeah, um, yeah, that's smart. And when, <laughs> and, when, and when I'm doing that, I'm 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 sort of engaged in a different way of seeing the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm out with a with a digital camera, I use a Sony A7R3, 
with the 24 to 105 lens on there. I typically use the viewfinder because um, it's an excellent viewfinder, and, it, and, and I use that to find a picture. Mm-hmm. And there is a, there is a subtle difference in the way that um, that you see. I think um, I'm, I'll, I'll typically construct more three dimensionally with a large format camera. I'm not sure why that is, but you know, you know, the typical maybe. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, Mark Munch or mm-hmm. David Munch. David mm-hmm. Munch, Jack the King, uh, the fourth perspective that you get with large format pictures quite often. Joe Cornish. Um, that tends to be something working with foreground and background, but with not with ultra wides. That that's a sort of typical how a large format photographer might see things in a in a nature world. Yeah, I was um, going to say, um, I I love seeing those kinds of images in the field with my eyes, but with a digital camera, unless you're like you said, unless you're shooting ultra wide, I've found it's really hard to get that near far. Um, kind of yeah. three-dimensional feel unless you're doing a lot of like, uh, I guess the right word for it is, um, you know, focal length blending because, yeah. and I think that speaks to that, uh, those physical limitations of the equipment you're using. Yeah, I think a little bit of that comes from um, being able to use tilt, obviously, <laughs> but you can use mm-hmm. tilt, tilt with 35 more cam- cameras, obviously. But, the, but there is something to be had with uh, the combination of tilt and shift together. There's, there's something called looming, which you can do with a, uh, with a large format wide-angle lens, which is where you use the, let's say you're using a 90mm lens. Or, okay, let's talk in, I'm going to talk in 35mm focal length equivalent sure. to make it easy. You're using a 24mm lens, but it's a tilt-shift lens. Uh, so instead of using the center of the lens, you use the very edge of the lens. So you've shifted to, to make your viewpoint go to, right to the edge of the image circle. Now we, now we know when you use a wide-angle lens, there's, there's perspective distortions on the edge of wide-angle lenses. So what you've done by shifting a, a large amount on a, on a tilt-shift lens is to put your view in the edge of that wide-angle lens that has the most perspective distortion. And that creates a, a different viewpoint. It makes the uh, the foreground look uh, apparently larger than it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And, this, and, and it, it, it comes naturally through the way you use, what many people use a large format camera. What they do is they set up with a camera perfectly level, pointing at the horizon, and then they'll drop the front standard to, uh, to get the foreground in, and then they'll use tilt afterwards. And the combination of using those two things does this uh, using the edge of the image circle to create uh, a, a more of a perspective distortion. Mm-hmm. So you can get something that that's actually looks like it's been taken with an ultra-wide, but it's actually a, not an ultra-wide viewpoint, right. if that makes sense. It's like 35 yeah. millimeters or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's that's something that you know, large format photographers have been doing. Uh, it's I think David Munch was probably the first person to make that popular definitely yeah and i don't know about you but i i personally find uh those types of large format images to be um i guess the right word i'm right phrase i'm looking for is that it, it more approximates an actual experience like the actual experience you had at, at the scene with yeah. your own eyes um whereas okay. digital I- wide angle i feel like it you know, because of the distortion and because of the effects of um, 
wide angle. Like it doesn't always seem to approximate reality as well. Yeah, I think I think it's a difficult one, and I think some of that. I mean, I've I've tried to work out why that is, and there's a combination of a few factors, uh, and I think one of it is this. Um, especially with tilt, you've got the foreground in focus, the background in focus, mm-hmm. but it's not all in focus at once. I think sometimes um, when you try and use a wide angle lens, you stop down a little bit to get everything in focus because you've got foreground and background and all of a sudden everything becomes sharp. And, and if you see many of these large format shots that use this looming effect, the foreground's in focus and out of focus. So the bits, the, the focal points are in focus, but the ground beneath them is out of focus. So you've got this uh, almost bokeh effect uh, in different parts of the picture. Um, and it, and it, <laughs> it, creates, it creates a sense of three-dimensionality. You know when you get in like an F1.4 lens, you take a portrait, mm-hmm. and you get that three-dimensionality of the head against the blurry background. Mm-hmm. And this, thing, this goes on in large format, but the background can be from top to bottom rather than near and far. Right. It's so a totally you, different so you, focal plane. <laughs> yeah yeah so um and then and, um, i i did some photographs or it was actually i was with out with joe cornish and we're doing some photographs of boulders on a beach and obviously the boulders sit behind each other on the beach going out to the distance uh and we've set the the focal plane up so it skimmed across the top of the boulders and the 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 arc of the top of the boulder was in focus but if you looked at the boulder behind it it was out of focus right behind the arc uh, so it's so it stood out, and then the next boulder top was in focus, and that sat behind and out of focus, and it and it created a uh, a, a sense of depth to a picture that it was, and we wouldn't I would never noticed it before, and we only spotted it because we had a uh, a non tilted version where we'd stop down, and then the tilted version side by side. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other aspect to it is that that because when you when you have larger cameras. The tolerances to make lenses are a lot less. You can make very, very good lenses, um, and you see this in medium format. Although you have to spend a lot more money <laughs> on a digital medium format camera to get it, but when you when you get a, a lens that's designed for shift, and people will see this with say the twenty four Canon, uh, the Mark II Canon tilt lens, the corners are perfect. There is no smearing. There is no uh, loss of veracity in the corners, uh, and sometimes that can can subtly detach you from a picture you know if you've got things smearing in the corners or there are subtle distortions that you're not quite picking up on obviously but they're there it can it can detach you from the picture a little i think Mm -hmm. Um, and when you see a a picture taken with a very very good lens um it 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 it, say it it pops i think it's the phrase we use but it has a has a sense of um three-dimensionality that's sometimes missing with a with a cheaper, more complex lens. Yeah, have you have you played around at all with um, various uh, tilt shift lenses on the Sony uh, system? I haven't on the Sony. No, um, although no, I have, but not commercially available ones. I've got a I've got a Mirex tilt adapter, which is goes between the Sony mount and the Canon EF mount, uh, and I've got a few different lenses that have been adapted to Canon EF. So I've got some old. Canon FD lenses from the film camera that have had the mounts changed over to EF. Uh, so we've got the 50, 50 F1.4, which is lovely. And I've also got the Sigma Art 50mm and the 24mm, which I use on the tilt adapter as well sometimes. Hmm. That sounds uh, fun. <laughs> with 
and they, and they do have a, they do work very well. They're just a bit of a pain to use. Sure. Um, yeah, especially with it, especially with the more modern. With the manual, fifty mil is quite nice because it's got uh, a manual aperture ring. But on the on the Sigma lenses, I have to mount them to a normal Canon. I've got a I've got a what's it called now? Metabones adapter. Oh sure. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have to mount it to the Metabones, set the aperture, take the lens off while it's still on, and then the aperture freezes in place, <laughs> and then I can mount. And then I can mount it to the tilt lens. And it's like, that's really a lot of work, isn't it? Why not? I'll just go and use a large format camera. It's fine. <laughs> I was going to say, you might as well at that point. <laughs> yeah. So so essentially, my my digital uh, use now it tends to be go out with a 24 to 105 and use it nearly always handheld. Um, and, and with the modern cameras now, the ability to use them handheld in maybe even twilight conditions is amazing. Yeah, I've got the so. same the same lens. I'm I'm really happy with that lens. I think it's a really solid piece of glass. Mm. The, the zoom lenses are always a compromise, but that's that's about as good as it gets, I think. Yeah, it's got a nice, you know, it's F four. It's you know, I, I don't know. I've I've found it to be really versatile, so I like it. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, um, shift shifting gears a little bit. I I really yeah. wanted to spend some some time talking to you about um, your giant project that you've been working on which is you know on on landscape magazine so yeah um i guess i would love to hear a little bit of history like um like when did you start it why did you start it um kind of what what were you kind of setting out to accomplish yeah well this this i mean there's a, there's a gap between when i ended up uh with this large format camera after this workshop in uh, the outer hebrides where I was going, I, I was working as a, uh, a software engineer, um, web developer. Um, while, whilst I'd been off work and in between playing Quake games, I taught, <laughs> taught myself uh, so, uh, programming language, I taught myself Perl. Uh, and so I'd, I'd started developing websites for a few of the local people. At the time, I was also working as a scout for a record company. So I, I'd got access to lots of musicians who wanted websites. So I did the first website for Badly Drawn Boy, Twisted Nerve Records. Uh, and after that, I, I managed, it was quite a good time to learn the internet in 1996. Because yeah. by, by the time I was ready to go back to work in 99, it was a, it was a good time to be an internet developer. So I, I yeah, I, I did quite well with that for a while. Um, my back had a bit of a, a problem, so I ended up working for myself uh, and ran my own web company. For a, for a few years, we, we used to do Python software development. Uh, and in, in between that, I was doing some graphic design for people. So I if you, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Python programming language. I it's have. A, ah, well, I, I designed the logo for them. That's one of my small oh, cool. things there. <laughs> um, and so I'd done some graphic design. I'd done a little bit of writing. I used to uh, help write reviews and I'd, uh, for a music magazine. And I ran my own listings magazine when I used to live in Scotland before. So I'd done some writing, done some graphic design. Uh, I was doing my photography. Whilst I was running a business, I was getting internally fed up of uh, month by month trying to get sales. The whole the whole cycle of, uh, and pressure of continually um, trying to get the next uh, website to develop was was just getting a, a bit too much. And I, I thought, right, well, let's let's look at what I'm I'm doing, what I'm good at. And let's see if we can find a, a way of um, finding a niche 
that that isn't doesn't have this continuous pressure. Um, and as I looked at it, I thought, well, I, I, I love the photography as a hobby. Um, um, I, I can write, I can do websites. So I thought, well, I could do a website around it. And, and I'd already run my own website uh, and, and had a blog on there for a while, which had got reasonably popular. Um, and there was, there was a magazine in the UK called AG. Um, and it was, it was a little niche magazine. It was a guy who used to design books. Uh, and, and it was very esoteric. It used to have things on platinum plating printing. It would be uh, portraiture. Uh, it would go um, bits about digital photography. It would talk about the history of art. Uh, and, and sadly, when, when he died, the guy who ran it, um, he, uh, it, it stopped. And I, and I thought there must, be, um, there must be a way of doing something like that again. So I started looking at magazines. And as I, as I chatted with a couple of people I know who worked in the magazine publishing industry, I realized that their, their model essentially is predicated on a two-year life cycle of a subscriber. Um, this is most commercial magazines. Um, they would say a new new photographer comes along. Um, they want to buy cameras and gear. We can we can give them something interesting, which we can put between adverts, uh, in order to keep them entertained for a couple of years. At which point they'll probably stop buying the amount of gear they were and won't be of interest to advertisers in the same way. Huh, that's probably uh, true. I mean, yeah. When I think and about so- when I think about a outdoor photographer magazine, you know, it's like when I first started, it was like really interesting and I liked it. But after maybe two years, it was like, there's nothing in here that I need that's new. Like it doesn't seem fresh. doesn't yeah. seem. So yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. And, and I talked to a few people who wrote for these magazines saying, why, why don't, why don't they write more interesting topics? Uh, and then essentially they said, they're not interested in more interesting topics because they, <laughs> they, they essentially have almost like a calendar list of this is our, this is our two year cycle circular seasonal based article pool that we commission or or have submissions from and so i went okay there must be there must be something there for people who have stopped being subscribers to those magazines but are still looking for interesting content um and i thought well there's there's, there's a few ways around that how do, how do you make money at it well um you could run advertising um or you you do subscriptions and everybody said Nobody will ever pay for content on the internet. That's a ridiculous idea. Uh, but I thought advertising just also pushes you down a certain editorial creative channel, which I didn't want to go down. Um, you know, they, they inevitably, uh, as financial pressures become uh, get applied, and they will get applied at some point in any business, you, the urge is there to satisfy the advertisers rather than write just what you want or put what you want in. So. So we, we thought, well, let's go the subscriber way. Um, but instead of having to build up a big um, subscriber base initially, why don't we give away some of the content, give away maybe half the content so people can read it for free and have a look around. And then if, if people like it, then they'll take a subscription out for the higher content for the, for the other half. Um, and we, we quickly, I think we went to 600 subscribers in, in about six six to nine months, uh, which which made it a little bit more financially feasible. And when did you uh, when did you start the magazine? No, I I keep on having to look at when this happened. Let me just have a look <laughs> at the the date. Um, 
because I look back and I, I've got in my head that it's six years. It, it can't be six years. It must be longer than that. Uh, oh, blimey, nine years. Wow. <laughs> nine, 2010, I'm just looking at the first article written for the magazine now, was uh, shooting into the sun, um, looking at contrajour lighting, which was written in September 2010. Nice. So, yeah, so that was a, a case of, um, it, it, I suppose it was the dawn of this the idea of a freemium model, which I think is very popular these days. And you and it sounds like you do the same thing with the, with the Patreon channel. Yeah, a little bit, have, yeah. Have a, have, a, have a certain amount of free content and then and try and work out ways of saying, well, if you're really interested in that, I'll maybe have something extra. Uh, and people do it with, with product uh, and, and it's, it seemed to work for us. Um, and we still have maybe a third of our content free for anybody, uh, a little bit extra free if you take out a free subscription and then the rest of it's paid. Nice. Um, and and it, it was oh, it's quite scary for my wife because I sat down, we were on holiday with the family, and I said, I'm going to start a photography magazine. <laughs> uh, this time I was working, working uh, for a company doing web development, and they were like, you're going to do what? Yes, I'm going to give up my job. And So, yeah. Like, yeah, have you gone shot. mad? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that, that, that was a long conversation with my wife when we got home, but but like looking back on it, it was obviously a good thing to do. No, it was it was it was interesting because it was I, there's so many ideas about what we could possibly do at the start, and what what was really interesting at the start was the pressure of how often to produce a magazine. Mm-hmm. Because everybody around me was saying, "Well, a magazine's monthly, so you go for monthly content." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, having worked for the internet for such a long time, I, I said, "People won't wait that long on the internet. You, you know, people want content on a regular basis." Um, and so we came up with this idea of um, we would publish every two weeks, um, but we would trickle out content on the web every maybe two or three days. Mm. So. It, so we it would be like a website that compiles itself every two weeks mm-hmm. into a PDF publication, um, and and to begin with we didn't have the PDF, but after a few issues, I think after about six or nine months, we decided let's have a proper nice nicely designed PDF version as another bonus for paying subscribers. So you can download them onto your iPad or whatever. So. So with your with your particular model of doing the magazine, I'm assuming that uh, over the last decade that you've kind of reaped some non-financial uh, rewards uh, from publishing a magazine like that. What can you speak to a little bit about kind of what the magazine has done for you as a photographer? As a photographer, um, well, there's. Yeah, well, one of the biggest things it's done for a photog- as, for me as a photographer is allowed me to move to the Highlands of Scotland, uh, <laughs> and and that's no that's no uh, shouldn't be underestimated as a as a creative inspiration. Um, we we were living in Leeds, which is a a city in the north of England, um, and uh, we we shortly afterwards started the magazine. We moved over to East Yorkshire to help my uh, brother-in-law with his kids because his, his wife had passed away. Uh, and we uh, spent spent a couple of years there in the flattest part of the country. And at that point in time, uh, my wife had started helping with the magazine a little bit and her consultancy work had, had died down a little and she was doing a few jobs online so we could live anywhere. 
And we, we came to the point where we went, well, we can live anywhere we like now, really, hmm. once my once my brother-in-law was, was a bit more settled. And so we thought, where, where do we want to live in the country? Um, and we looked at a few different areas in the England, which were all too expensive. Uh, and we'd been holidaying in Scotland for a long time. And we we looked at Glencoe, and it turned out it had well, it had, a, it had a bunch of photographers going by the front door, which was quite useful. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's on the main artery that travels up the, up the east, west coast of Scotland. So that was great. Um, and it's just, it's just a beautiful location. Uh, the highlands of Scotland, especially around the Glencoe area, just have such variety. I mean, it's beautiful. Many places are beautiful, but it, it changes dramatically just because of the way the, the local geology and landscape so that that was a, a big thing that came out of it. Um, other things that came out of it are just meeting meeting loads of very very nice people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and six year six four years ago five years ago we started a, the conference as well. So we run a photography conference once every two years, which was which was fantastic to do. And we we, we wanted to start a, a physical event where we could get people. It's it's another another case of it, in software engineering and open source engineering. You have this idea called eat your own dog food, or essentially scratching your own itch. If you if if you want something and it's not there, write it yourself. Uh, and and I I was sitting there thinking I, I would love it if there was a, some conference where I could see all the photographers that I are uh, talking, uh, the people who inspired me. So uh, in in that vein of thinking, I said, well, I've got to do it myself. Um, and so we got uh, some of my he- photography heroes to come over and talk at the conference. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, that's been that's been one of the really fun parts of me doing the podcast is um, developing relationships with with people all over the all over the world, and you know, getting to know them, but also just you know, getting getting infused with some of their thinking and their thoughts and. Like it, I don't know about you, but for me, it's it's definitely um, kind of had a, an impact on the way I think about photography and, and things of that nature. So it's pretty fun to yeah. to, oh, to think well, about. Sorry about that. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, yeah. It, I know it's, it it can't help but influence your thinking. And one of the one of the biggest things I realize is that there's so many photographers who who have spent a life creating work think deeply about how they work. That that uh, and have a have a consistency in some of the topics they work with that isn't obvious when you just look at the pictures on their own, right? Uh, and and yet sits like an undercurrent through all everything they do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and so, for instance, I think in um, I'm looking at the, the conference we had we had um, a photographer called John Blakemore, who's a British black and white photographer, uh, who I who I wanted to to talk at the conference. So I went on one of his workshops uh, he did. And it was a, he's a black and white photographer. Uh, and he's, actually, I hate saying, using this word. He, he, uh, people say he's more of an artist than a photographer, <laughs> which, is a stu- which is a stupid phrase because he's a photographer, but he's an artist. And, and it's, and, but it's a way of thinking, I think. Instead of saying this is art or this isn't art, I think the the biggest definition of it is: Are you are you thinking about your work in a creative fashion? Are you being self analytical in it? So the, the the art isn't in the product; the art is in the in the way of thinking. I think, and that's 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 one of the things that really came 
um, came to me is 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 why are why are you doing what you're doing? Um, are you thinking about it to to try and figure out what it is you're photographing? Um, yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's not it's not a subtle thing um, in terms of the, the life that, that an artist lives, um, and and the photographs don't necessarily communicate that, but I do think that it enriches what you do by photographing something, um, and and it's about having a life to photograph. That's probably a good way of saying it. Well, and it's it's such interesting too because when so often when I think about the word art or artistry or artistic, I don't always associate it with a way of thinking, right? Like a lot of people, I feel like you associate it with how you feel and how that gets communicated through your art form. But I think you're right. I think there is something to this idea of actively thinking like an artist because it forces you to kind of tap into uh, creative uh, ways of approaching your art form. Yeah. And I don't think it, it this this doesn't, I mean, people have this idea that, that if you're thinking about it, you're sitting there in the field and you've got all these <laughs> ama- amazing deep thoughts going on in your brain when you're working. And I realize that that doesn't happen. Um, when, when the unless you're unless you're Gaitel, uh, yeah. Um, but if <laughs> but if you're in the field, most mostly photographers I speak to, their their minds are they they're going through a sort of a flow state where sure. they aren't being deeply analytical in what they're doing. But what they are doing is when they get back, they're thinking about it afterwards. They're thinking about the processes. They're thinking about and and what happens is that sets the framework for the flow state to happen. So you're, mm-hmm. you're 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 almost doing the food preparation before you go out. So uh, and that and that can then inform what you choose to take, what you choose to select from the landscape, or or what moods might be um, um, taken from it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. and that, and 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 meeting lots of people like that was fantastic. There's another there's another guy called Paul Kenny, who I, I recommend. Uh, the readers taking a, a look at a video of we've got online on our YouTube channel the recordings of each of these uh, presentations. Is one another thing we told we were being stupid doing is organizing organizing a conference, paying paying thousands of pounds to get all the speakers in, and then giving away the recordings for free online. But, <laughs> right, but that's that's another thing that I wanted to do. I wanted to make. I wanted to get these people to do their definitive talk and, and, and disseminate it and make it free for people to, to, to read. And, and we, we saw the conference because the conference doesn't make any money. The first one made a loss. The second one we did broke even. Um, but I think it works as a good advertising platform to show what we're about. You know, what, what's on landscape about? Well, go and look at the, the, the conference and, and have a look at some of the presentations read some of the free stuff we've got online uh, and then make your mind up. Yeah. Well, I'm also curious too, for the, for the magazine, like what are some of the, what are some of the challenges that you've had to overcome or that you continue to face uh, doing a, a, I guess you're calling it an every other week publication, but what are, what are some of the dragons that you you've had to face for that project? Yeah. I think, the, the one everybody thought we'd have a problem with is how much content, you know, 10 years of publishing every two weeks, um, you know, 10 articles or whatever, eight articles every two weeks. How are you going to do, fill that in? 
it, it turned out there is there are lots of ways to talk about photography, uh, and there are lots of ways to talk about similar things. And every, and basically, what it ends up with it's not necessarily the subject you're talking about; it's the person who's talking about it that is the interesting part. So instead of trying to write articles on this is how you do perspective in photography or this is how you um, create this sort of picture, what it ended up is 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 more about how photographers work themselves. So how how does how does Adam Smith work as a photographer? How does Tom Tom Mackey work as a photographer? Um, what the, what are their own personal journeys? And just as you found everybody's got an interesting story. It may be it may be all the stories are essentially variations on the same thing, but they all have uh, an interesting development and an angle, etc. After all, Hollywood's worked on the same three stories for the last 10 decades. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, um, what ended up as a challenge was often trying to guide things a little bit, trying to work out um, what what is it that makes a good a, a good issue. So how do we mix things so that hmm. it doesn't get too, too boring? Because it's difficult to say. I know... I know when I first started, I was looking at the numbers, for instance. There's a challenge for you. Uh, we get all our visitor numbers and how many people log in and who pays and who unsubscribes and who subscribes. Mm-hmm. Uh, after two or three years of looking at those figures, I, sw- I swore never to look at them again. So uh, the only time I ever find out really if the magazine is doing really well or not so well is when we do the accounts um, in terms of revenue. Um, or we see some of the visitor figures on a YouTube channel, for instance, or some comments. But I try not to engage it with how successful we're being, because I think it's a it's too much of an influence. It's like it's like basing your photography on how many Instagram hits you're getting, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, avo- avoiding that is, but and I'm, I'm, I'm yet still engaging with how successful or or whether you're producing something of interest. So how how do you know you're doing something good? It's yeah, difficult. it's funny. I have kind of a similar, I guess, challenge with the podcast, you know, because I can look at the, you know, the listen numbers or the downloads or whatever, and and I can tell, you know, which episodes people are finding more interesting or more popular. But what I've found is that that's not, it doesn't always correlate with the best episodes in my personal, no. you know what I mean? So it's like, I have to kind of disassociate you know, what people are downloading more versus what I think is better content. And I think it, I think it's okay. Like it's okay that those aren't always going to be in line, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because you don't know the average listener doesn't exist or the average reader doesn't exist. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> you know, you, you could decide, well, I'm only going to do the popular ones uh, and then lose 50% of your readership because actually the other 50% of the readership is spread around every other one and only only listen once every three or four maybe or something like that and i know i know we've got we have some subscribers who say well i only look at it once every three months and i'll only really maybe read like four or five articles but they're worth it for me they're worth the price of entry um and when i you know when you get people like that it's quite satisfying to think well okay yeah um I, i relate it to when i worked in the music industry um, and <laughs> you would you you would get the music magazines. When you get a music magazine, half of the magazine is irrelevant to you because you're not interested in that sort of music. And then out of the what's left, you may be only interested in two of the artists that you're in that you like listening to. 
So you've just bought a magazine. You bought a magazine where eighty percent of the contents uh, are not much relevance to you, really. Well, you could all you could make the same kind of comparison with like a, an album or a CD. Like maybe there's only two or three songs on that CD out of twelve or fifteen songs, but you're still going to buy the whole album. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's difficult to make value decisions on those sorts of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think photography is a bit like that sometimes as well. We we in the music industry, uh, they pigeonholing people is such a big thing. You know, do you listen to alt rock? Do you, are you a alt folk person, or is it math rock? Do you like or or grunge or whatever? Uh, and this person who likes grunge won't listen to uh, alt rock stuff or whatever. And then and in photography, we don't have that sort of genre based dismissal of certain things. You know. We argue about whether a picture is good or not, but what's actually happening is some person likes grunge pictures and another person like, likes classical pictures. Um, and and there's, there's nothing wrong with that, and there shouldn't ever be something wrong with that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and that's not just you know like uh, big landscapes or anything. It's down to subtle ways of using um, the content in a picture and composition and things as well. We have our own tastes, uh, and taste is always going to trump most other things well i mean and not to get cliche but i mean you could make the same kind of i guess parallels in terms of you know different styles of post-processing and black and white versus color or uh you know does someone do composites or digital manipulation versus people who um do very minimal processing i think you know what you're saying is that you know those are those are all just genres of photography and there's no, it comes down to personal preference of what people might like. Well, yeah. When, when my job, my job when I was working in the music industry was a, was a talent scout for the North of England for a record label. And I, I had to go through the process of, of suppressing my personal tastes to be able to work out whether, whether music was good or not, whether an artist was going to be interesting or a possible signing. Uh, and that process was really intriguing because I found myself then listening to music on the radio, popular music, for instance. Um, oh, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of there was a we, we had a sit down once. Uh, there we go, Britney Spears. <laughs> Hit me, baby, one more time. Still, 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 I think that Britney Spears. Two of Britney Spears' songs are two of the best songs I know and which I don't like personally, but I think they're genius. And that's Hit Me Baby One More Time and Toxic. Um, but that's when, you can, that's when you can sit back and say, actually, I'm going to suppress my personal taste and start w- working out is something good or not? What, what assets does it have? Does it, does it hit all the right notes? To be cliched about it again. Yeah. Uh, and things like Hit Me Baby One More Time, incredible lyrics, brilliant melody. The production is fantastic in it. Toxic, same sorts of things. And sometimes when you hear cover versions of these songs, you go, actually, that's a bloody good song. It's just the slight, the flavor it was done in didn't suit the flavor of what I liked at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's exactly the same with photography. You know, you can say I can hate compositing and then see a picture that just absolutely blows you away using it. And, and so you switch off your taste and enjoy it. You can enjoy the good in a lot of things. Sadly, there's a lot of bad in everything as well. So. It's, it's not necessarily the genres that are an issue. It's the it's just the good or bad quality within them. Sure. Or and like you said, just your personal preference of kind of what 
what you like to view. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that could be just subject matter as well. You know, I like, I like watching, I like seeing pictures of the, of the Scottish mountains. I like mountain photography. I like the desert plains. I like minimalist black and white, uh, long exposure, seaside photography, that sort of thing. Um, within every one of those genres is going to be great work or bad work. Um, with every post-processing type, there's going to be good and bad. So it's a, uh, it's a tough one. Yeah. I've, I've got my own personal tastes, but I do, I do now try and appreciate everything, especially being uh, editorially based like I am now. Yeah. So for the, for the magazine, are you, um, in terms of, uh, generating content, are you paying photographers to write and or provide images for the magazine? Uh, yeah, we have a, a sort of sliding scale from, um, I think the most we've ever paid for an article was about 600 pounds. Um, uh, I think, I think we, um, and then, and then half of the content is donate, uh, contributed. So it, there's, there's reader contributed content where people want to publish something and we'll try and help them. So, uh, for instance, sometimes we talk to people and say, we'd love to see an article by you. They say, we're not a writer. I said, well, I'm quite happy to work with you as an editor to, to get a good article from from you. So they'll have a try at writing. We'll go back and say, can you expand on this and do this? Or sure. maybe write, write like this. Um, so we'll invest time rather than money in, in helping people, mm. but just to try and get people published. And on the, on the point of view of, of some, some people write exceptionally well, uh, Guy Tal, I think, is a fantastic writer. Um, David Ward, who's going to start writing, who has started writing again for us. He spent two years in Botswana. Is a is a brilliant writer. Uh, we'll pay more money for them. I saw you had my friend Sarah Marino in yes. a recent uh, article. Yeah, Sarah's great. Yeah, like she's an awesome writer. Yeah. So we we, we look around for. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a tough it's a tough ask in many ways to find somebody who's a good photographer who can communicate about their photography that well, um, and also turn that into an engaging article. All, all in one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, it, and it's a rare skill definitely a rare skill for sure have you found um <laughs> have you found that content that is more i guess for lack of a better term controversial in nature does that tend to do well on your platform or do you tend to avoid that type of um, topic um commer- well i suppose it depends on on how you say it uh, was it successful or not um Two articles, did very, <laughs> two articles right. did very well. One, one, the, the one we did where we compared all the film types and did 10.8 versus uh, 5.4 versus digital, etc. Um, that was a big test. We talked about it on the forums online for a bit. And that, that one ranked highest out of any article we've ever done. We made it free. Um, and, then, and then we decided, okay, let's, let's just try and milk this a little bit. Let's do a uh six seven photography versus nikon d800 so it's mamiya seven versus d800 and we 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 did a smaller version of it and sent it off to petapixel uh and nearly killed our website in the process uh then, <laughs> then many visitors came in to look at it uh i don't think it generated any revenue for us in the slightest but it was it was the most successful in terms of volume of traffic uh <laughs> in terms in terms of um Revenue, I, that one, I mean, that generated a little bit. The, when we did a test with a Sony A7R II when it came out, I want to move the A7R, uh, we, were, we were ahead of the ball quite a bit because we had a pre-release copy 
that that mm. that brought in a lot of subscribers who then just unsubscribed at the end of um six months or whatever period they took out so mm. yes yes the idea we, we stick something controversial in we'll get a lot of interest uh but i'm not sure it creates longevity mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah no that makes sense <laughs> so we tend not to do it for instance i mean i i, have, I we haven't actually monetized this one we did a recent review of um graduated filters massive oh. test, massive test of filter systems 17 different systems uh well, we did it over five five issues testing everything uh all that analysis very interesting people will write about it uh so kind of stuff like uh color cast and like... color cast reflectivity scratch resistance uh uh-huh. usability how how easy it is to insert take uh-huh. the polarizer out does a polarizer work do you get distortion in corn all sorts of rubbish um and and, and that went i mean that was quite interesting just to see where glass filters had gone in terms of changing them and then we followed it immediately afterwards with an article from joe on saying why he uses joe cornish about why he uses graduated filters and then an article from alex nail about why using filters is is a waste of time and you shouldn't shouldn't use them so uh (laughs) And and just you know it's a bit of bit of art, artificial controversy. The problem is the problem is we we're too nice. And Joe's article said I use graduated filters because of this, but use what you like. Alex said I don't use filters because of this, but use what you like if it makes you happy. And that's that's the answer at the end of it. I think that's the that's the non-controversial answer. We, what we should have said is is no no you must use graduated filters otherwise you're a waste of time as a photographer. You must use film. No. <laughs> not, quite, not quite there. We, we definitely have to do what, do whatever the hell you like as long as you enjoy it. School of yeah, I think it's good to just show people kind of different, you know, divergent thought processes. I think yeah. that's I'll, the most important thing at the end of the day. <laughs> allow people their own confirmation bias to get the answer they want. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, if Alex Nail says it, then I'm totally on board. Yeah, and if Joe Cornish supports grads, we'll go with him. <laughs> Exactly. It depends on whose photography you like more. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's funny. I'm always I'm always surprised to you know a lot of these big photo contests um, that have like really well known judges who have seen billions and billions of photos, and yet often what seems to rise to the top is kind of the same old type of shot of the same old kind of classic scene. And it's, um, I was, I'm always surprised by that. Cause you would, I mean, this last year of international landscape photographer with Adam Gibbs, I think was kind of an exception to that, which I was really yeah. happy to see, but I, I've found oftentimes it's, um, you still see those kind of same old shots of Patagonia, like the same shot yeah. of Fitzroy, like in with the lenticular clouds, like, yeah, it's freaking amazing. But like, Every every like photographer who's been around for more than a couple of years probably and has tr- done any amount of traveling probably has a similar shot. So I'm always surprised to see those shots kind of rise to the top still. Yeah, I I, I think there's there's a there's a psychological thing that goes on in judging competitions that that end, ends up producing uh, results like that. Mm. Personally, I think there's there's. There's a couple of aspects to it. One is one is most competitions seem to be judged using online interfaces. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and I know I've judged quite a few where you go through and you say uh, you pick that one 
uh, and then you go past it and then you pick another one and you go past it and you're given, I mean, I've done one where it's been 15,000 images mm-hmm. and I've been asked to whittle it down to maybe a thousand. So you're saying you've got in your head one in 15. Um, and I'm not being, I'm not going to be critical about the huge, massive photographers out there, but there's a hell of a lot of rubbish in there. There is for sure. I, I, I've swore when I was a talent, talent scout uh, for, for the music industry, and I keep mentioning this, I'm not trying to show off, but it's a good example of I would never dismiss uh, a demo tape in, in three seconds like everybody else said they did. Um, but you do. You, you can recognize things in, in a second or two, whether it's going to be dross. You can't tell whether it's going to be great in a second or two, but you can normally, within a few seconds, listening to an intro or the first bar of a song, realize oh no okay it's one of those (laughs) moving Uh, on (laughs) yeah in photography you get the same sort of thing you can quickly uh see an image uh and go not great not great however the images that have a little bit more longevity aren't instant uh and so if you're going through and you've got i've got to get rid of one in 15 images uh and majority of these images I'm, i'm going past the rubbish it's very easy to skip over an image that has that needs a little bit of looking at to see beyond mm-hmm. it. Then if you're looking at a lot of rubbish and a, and a photograph of Fitzroy appears, well, Fitzroy looks good regardless. So it gets passed because it's better than the 15 you've seen before. Sure. No, that makes sense. Uh, and so you, you have this um, subject-based way of picking pictures really uh, rather than the artistic content of the picture mm-hmm. um, and 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 to not do that you've got to be very self-aware as a judge of of how you you make personal decisions right um i i help do i help set up the judging for the wildlife photographer of the year so i do the technical judging for them on on whether the people have cheated or not oh. etc <laughs> uh, uh but also i also help in the the judging um, categories, uh, what what's allowed and what isn't allowed, and also the judging process we've been doing recently on, you know, what 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 the actual physical process the judges go through when they're going through the first round. So, for instance, one of the things we introduced early on is that the, the judges should judge all the way from the start to the end. So you don't have one set of judges for the first bit and another set of judges for the last bit, which many many competitions do. Mm. So they get they get some. I won't say no-name people, but they get some C-list photographers, uh-huh. a horrible thing to say, to do the first set of judging, and they pass on maybe 800 pictures to the, the A-list photographers to go through and pick the last few. And the problem is you get a lot of the good stuff being thrown out in the first rounds. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, so, so we decided, okay, same judges all the way through. Um, and recently we, we've decided that we it, people should be allowed to use Lightroom to do the initial selections so that they can rate things and reorganize things and categorize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the way most online systems work, there's no way you can go back and change your mind about things. It's just too long-winded. Mm-hmm. So, so you end up making instinctive decisions that you might regret later. Well, I think there's something to be said too for um... – contests where all the images are in person like they're they're uh i think aipp or australia they they do it this way where i I think where all of the images are actually like physically produced and you can kind of walk around the room 
and you can actually come back to an image. Like you don't have to make up your mind right away. You can look at everything that's there yeah. and then come back to the stuff that really kind of caught your caught your eye. I think there's something to be said for that kind of tangible the, the pop- in-person, I'm looking at it in front of my own two eyes kind of a process. We, we got asked by quite a few people, why, why didn't we didn't run a competition? And I, I wrote an article once about what would make the perfect competition. <laughs> uh, and and it, had, it, had, it had a few um, slightly problematic aspects, one of which was um, you shouldn't have to pay to enter um, because pay to enter it just sucks because it means people who can pay more can get more entries, mm-hmm. for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also uh, you shouldn't have to enter because a lot of great photographers don't enter competitions when really they should they should still be judged on whether they've got the best photograph. If you're going to choose the best landscape photographer in, in the UK, then you want to pick the best photographer, not just the best one that wants to self-promote themselves by spending some money entering a competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the final one of that is it shouldn't have a winner. <laughs> it really <laughs> screws everything up. So we, we, we came up with this idea of a perfect competition, which is essentially just a curated set of pictures you find on the internet. I like it. But it's not a competition then, is it? That's the problem. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Well, I mean, I guess it kind of is. I don't know. It's Yeah. That is interesting, though. I, I, yeah. And, it, and, 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 and that's what you want at the end of the day. What you really want in terms of a, of a person looking at the results of a competition, I just want a curated set of images that some some um, some of my peers have chosen for me to see. Uh huh. Like these are these are the best um, images that that we found that we really think you should take a look at. Yeah, yeah. When in actual fact, most most competition is oriented around I'm a landscape photographer and I want to win this so I can promote some workshops. Mm-hmm. Oh God, I've said it. There we go. Um, but I think I think that is I think a lot of people who enter competitions uh, there's a self promotional aspect of it which isn't particularly healthy, um, but there's also the idea that you know it's, it, many landscape photographers want to be able to be a landscape photographer for a living, which normally means they've got to run workshops, which means they have to self promote, and winning a few competitions here and there goes a long way to creating more exposure. Well, I've entered a few in the last couple of years, and it was not for that purpose. But I totally agree that that's why a lot of people yeah. do it, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've entered competitions, and I, there's, there's something innately that says I would like to see my own photographs judged against other people's. Yeah, like to see am where I, do I stack up? To see am I doing well yeah. or not? Yeah, where do I stack up? Who am I? What works? Am I getting better? Etc. Yeah, and for me, it usually just show, tells me like, yeah, you're pretty good, but not great. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but but I don't know if you've looked at the results of competitions. But you, I mean, everybody everybody I know must have looked at the top ones and gone, "How did that get?" Oh, there? for sure, like What's all the time. Doing? What the, what the hell is that doing in the book? When I looked um, at um, well, last year's uh, Epson Pano Awards, the winners' images, I was like, "These are lame." <laughs> like I I found <laughs> none of I did. I mean, everyone I talked to too were like, "Yeah, I don't know how those won," but oh, cool, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, I'm going to be. Um, there's the Landscape Photographer of the Year competition in the UK, which is uh, photographs taken within the UK, but anybody can submit them. I mm. think so. Um, and it's it's. I mean, Charlie Waite runs it, and he's a, he's a friend, so I'm not going to be too critical of it. But it's it's essentially it's a really difficult thing to run. I mean, it's it. 
judge, having judges is difficult. You've got sponsors. Sponsors want to be judges, to be engaged with mm-hmm. it. Um, <laughs> but they're not, they're not photographers. Some of the judges aren't real, really landscape photographers. They're um, stock photographers. Or portrait or so travel. Or, or portrait or travel or whatever. Right. Uh, some, some are landscape photographers, but they're so tied into a certain genre that they really don't see anything outside it. Right. Um, and, and so any competition is really symptomatic of the of the judges mm-hmm. and the type of judges you have. And, and, and it's always going to be flawed. There's always going to be um, odd decisions made. And especially when it comes to the final judging process where you get a group of people in a room trying to come up with a single decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that, that is so flawed in terms of uh, you get dominant personalities influencing things. Uh, you get slight group thing, group think going on where, People strongly dislike certain images, so an image will get through that's pretty boring just because it nobody's nobody has a strong enough reaction to viscerally hate it. <laughs> so it just so it just gets through. Uh-huh. Right. And I so, think too, like um I'm sure there's probably some politicking that goes on too, like, oh, this person really deserves it or or you know oh, yeah, those sure. kind of things yeah. I'm sure happen. So And it, and in I mean that in in the landscape photographer a bit and the wildlife photographer, I mean, if you work in wildlife photography, you know what everybody's working on, you know? You, so you, you see pictures going past in a, in a finals and they'll go, Oh yeah, that's uh, such and such. He's working on this project down in South America. It's really valid. He hasn't won the competition in the last five years. So he'd be a really good winner. It's like, Hmm, is that the right way to judge it? I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. But, but, but it does happen. You know, uh, and then also the opposite happens if somebody comes up and they know who it is and they're not a particularly likable character, nobody's going to pick them. Yeah, that's interesting too. Um, because I, I feel like, especially nowadays with social media and digital, everyone kind of most of the photos you see in the competition, like you've pro you're probably you've probably seen the best ones before from from the people that are putting them in the contest, like you've. Most yeah. of the time, it's not work that yeah. hasn't already been published somewhere. I don't know many photographers that don't show ninety nine percent of their work on, and then, social and then media. save the one percent for a contest. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. and only their best work. <laughs> not not going to happen. Right, uh, exactly. So, and even if they do, they're probably they're probably posting five or six images from almost exactly the same moment, just in different conditions or slightly different compositions. Uh, well, yeah, I think it was uh, the Epson Awards last year. Um, I can't remember who it was, but he had like two or three images that made it to the top, and they were all, I think, taken on the same day of Fitzroy. Like, oh, blimey, you yeah, know, it, yeah. It's like, mm, okay, cool, and like, I guess what surprised me about that was like one of the, um. I think one of the conditions for winning was like your images can't look too similar. You know, they need to be, the subjects need to be kind of different. And I was surprised because a lot of the people that won, like most of the images they won with were very similar in nature. So I was surprised by that. Anyway, you're right. It's very flawed. Um, Yeah. Uh, My wife's just come back. So do you want to to carry on in, in about half an hour or are we doing all right? I think we're um, 
just about done. I was just about to say, um, uh, who would you recommend for the podcast? Well, there's, there's a, uh, a thought. I mean, we, in terms of who we've had on the the magazine or in our um, conference, uh, I'd suggest a couple of this. There's Theo Bosboom, who's a fantastic uh, photographer. We've had talking. He does. He's done projects. He's like a crossover wildlife stroke landscape photographer working in projects. Um, there's Alistair Ben, who's a, a friend of the magazine, who's who lives not too so far away. Uh, which, I don't know. If it, which is funny because I'm going to talk to him in about 15 minutes. <laughs> Oh, fantastic! That's great. <laughs> Alice is a nice guy. He's a he's, he's I think he may well be um, moving back to Scotland. I don't know. So um, I believe so. so he, yeah, he, he, it'd be nice. He may move around the area, and if he does, it's good because he's another climber as well. So that should be. Uh, uh, he, he might get back into it. He can teach me a thing or two because he used to be a very good climber. I think. Nice. Um, how about how about Charlie Waite as well? Two Charlies for you, Charlie Waite and. Charles Kramer, Charlie Waits of the UK, uh, one of the dons of the UK landscape photography fraternity, uh, runs the landscape photography of the year, and Charles Kramer, I'm sure you know and most American photographers would know. Fantastic. Uh, and Adam's assistant, I think he was. Right. Awesome. Well, that's great. Uh, uh, and one more, Sandra Bartoka, possibly, if you can get hold of her. I know. I've been, we've been playing email tag for quite a while now. So <laughs> I've been trying to get around for sure. She has some really, she's really uh, lovely images. So yeah, she runs GDT. So she's always busy conference yeah. in Germany. Okay. I'll, I'll put a good word in. I like it. Well, <laughs> brilliant. Awesome. Well, Tim, thanks so much. This has uh, been really a lot of fun and um, I really appreciate you coming on and um, I've been really enjoying seeing the stuff you've been putting out for the magazine. So keep up the good work. Thank you very much. No, it's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks, Tim, for joining us on the podcast. I really enjoyed our discussion and look forward to seeing more from On, Lands- on Landscape magazine in the future. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help other people discover the show. And if you do, let me know and I'll send you a gift. Also, you can join the conversation over on Nature Photographers Network and on Patreon. There's been some great comments and discussion worth checking out. Well, speaking of Patreon, uh, we've been doing something really fun over there. Um, We have been doing a themed photo contest for patrons where you can submit photographs based on a theme. Uh, The theme for the past few weeks has been Nemesis, and patrons have shared their images of their Nemesis, a subject that they have tried for years to get the best images of, and it has somehow eluded them, but also inspired them to keep going back for more and more. There were a lot of really great and awesome submissions this time around from some amazing photographers, including Bob Miller, Jared Hills, John Whitaker, and Michael Rhino. In the end, I had to choose the photo from Bob Miller as the winner. Bob stated, quote, if I had to pick a nemesis, it would be uh, Saguaro National Park in Arizona. I always come back with images that I like, but few that I love. I think this one might be my personal favorite from the park. I tracked this winter storm for two days, knowing the cold would move through very quickly. It started coming down hard just as I entered the park east and after they closed the park. The rangers allowed us to continue through and it continued to snow for about an hour. Within two hours, there was no snow to be seen anywhere in the park. It's a really great photo, and I 
encourage you guys to check it out. It's in the liner notes. And uh, hopefully you guys submit to the next uh, the next themed photo contest. And this week uh, the, the theme is uh, changing seasons. So let's see those submissions. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about who's coming up on the podcast. I am really excited uh, about some of the guests in the upcoming episodes. Uh, I just got off the podcast with uh, Rachel Jones-Ross. She's a Canadian photographer, and I think that's going to be a really good one. Um, I'm looking forward to releasing the podcast that I did with Al- Alistair Ben. He's a photographer living in Scotland. Um, coming up, we've got uh, Brenda Petrella, a photographer in Vermont. Uh, Aaron Nace, the founder of Flern, and uh, Ian Plant is coming up, and uh, Franca Gabler, a photographer uh, living in California. Um, Well, cool. The last thing I wanted to tell you guys about is that um, thanks to our amazing patrons, uh, we finally hit our $1,000 a month threshold, and uh, as such, I promised about a year ago now that once we hit that that $1,000 award mark, I would do a landscape conservation award, and so we've we've published the criteria for that award over on my blog, and it's linked in the liner notes. And really excited to announce we've gotten uh, some really amazing sponsors uh, for the award. Uh, so the winner of the award is going to be getting more than just financial awards, but also some really cool prizes. Uh, really excited uh, to be partnering with uh, Shimoda Designs. Uh, Ian is his and his team. Uh, donated to the winner of the award a bag of their choice, a core unit, and a roller and accessory case, which is a $779 value. Uh, Ian and his team sent me a prototype of their upcoming uh, uh, bag that they're releasing in the fall, and I'm really excited to test it out. just came in the mail yesterday, and this thing is packed and loaded and amazing, so I can't wait to test it and show you guys all the bells and whistles over on my blog, so keep an eye out for that. Um, also really excited to be partnering with Read Art and Imaging. They're a fine art print lab located in Denver, Colorado, and they just happen to be, happen to be my print lab of choice for my high-end acrylic prints, which they called, they call excuse me, Diasec Acrylic Prints. Um, it's a really unique technology, uh, that I don't think any other lab in the United States uses, and, uh, the results are just absolutely stunning. Um, so, and I also think Reed has some of the best customer service in the business, and I recommend anyone check them out. They're donating to the winner uh, a $500 credit towards the purchase of a Diasec acrylic print. Okay, we've also got uh, Tamron uh, as a sponsor of the award. They're a very popular lens manufacturer, and they are donating to the winner a 45mm uh, f1.8 lens, which is a $599 value. Thank you, Tamron. And then lastly, we have uh, Viewbug. Uh, they're donating a uh, Pro Plus membership to their website, which is it's more or less a, uh, a photography contest website, and uh, that's a $179 value. So, so thank you, Viewbug. Okay, well, last but not least, I want to give a heartwarming thank you to our Patreon podcast producers. These incredible people are supporting the podcast at $20 a month level and level and higher and uh honestly they're they're why we're able to do this uh conservation award so thank you guys um thanks to michael howard jack curran eric stensland chris rice jeff peterson 
Charlotte Gibb, David Kingham, Anton Everine, Laurie Berenson, William Nurse, Ken Dono, Daniele Francois, James Bakavoy, Matthias at Photomagica, Richard Wong, Zachary Smith, Gary Randall, Frank Otto Peterson, and Michael Rung. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.